We're actually starting a new series this morning in the book of Titus. And uh, so I'm going to invite you to turn to Titus chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 4, and uh, follow along as I read this, uh, this passage today, and then we'll see what, uh, what the Lord has to say to us. So Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord Jesus, would you take this passage this morning and would you use it in a powerful way to speak into our hearts, we ask in your name. Amen. You know, sometimes how a person's story will stay with you. Now, one of my travels several years ago, I heard the testimony of a woman who, by her own admission, had lived a, a willful and destructive life. Frankly, as I listened to her, I couldn't help but think she made the woman at the well look like a saint. Um, listening to her story made me sad. But it wasn't just her story that made me sad. It was the, the, the way she had to struggle to find her way out. For weeks, she told us in her testimony, she drove past a, a nearby church, but she was afraid to go in. I'm quoting now, she said, I knew I needed Jesus. I knew I needed Jesus, but I thought I was too toxic for the church. You know, as our culture continues its downward spiral morally, I suspect that we're gonna see more and more people like that. Toxic people. People with seriously broken lives. And that's one of the reasons why this little book of Titus, I think, is so timely. Titus was written to a, a toxic and broken culture. The culture of Crete, Crete was at one time a, a great empire. Uh, the Minoan civilization had, uh, had its origins, its root, its foundation in Crete, but that was long, long past. The time this letter was written, Crete had, had gone downhill. Paul actually describes it in two ways. You see one of them down in verse 12. Look at verse 12, if you would. Paul quotes one of their own prophets in verse 12, who has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Now, it may surprise you, but that first phrase, they're always liars, that's a religious uh, reference. The Cretans had actually uh, had the audacity to, on their island, have a tomb for the great god Zeus. They believed that they had buried God. And so the rest of the world considered them just bold-faced liars. I mean, they were in your face about religion, sort of like the modern atheists. And so there were always liars in this religious sense. They were evil brutes. One writer at the time said that uh, we have, uh, mockingly uh, described them as saying of themselves, we have no need of predatory animals on our island. We are predatory 
animals. And then that phrase, lazy gluttons, that refers to their self-serving lifestyle. The Cretans are the only people in the world, the same writer I just referred to says, the only people in the world in whose eyes no means of gain is disgraceful. So they were irreligious, they were violent, they were self-indulgent, and those were the kind of people that Titus had been called to serve with the gospel. Now, the second description you'll find in verse 16 of the chapter, uh, chapter one, it's in that last phrase, the very last part of the sentence that says they are detestable, disobedient, and here's the phrase, and unfit for doing anything good. Now that phrase, unfit or fitness for doing anything good, appears seven times in this little letter of Titus. It appears one time here in chapter one where it refers to their leaders. Their leaders were unfit, unsuitable, unsuited to do anything good. That's how corrupt this culture had become in the apostles' eyes. And then in chapter two, Paul describes households, families, and three times he says of families, they need to be taught, reminded how to be good. They've forgotten how to be good. That's how corrupt the society had become on the island of Crete. And then in chapter three, three more times, he talks about society in general. And he says society in general, not just the leaders and not just families, this whole society, every piece of it, they've forgotten how to be good. Seven times in this little letter, Paul says, this is a toxic people. These are people who no longer know the meaning of good. They've forgotten it. They just don't know where to go and how to do that. So I think that's one of the reasons why Titus is timely to us today. It raises the question, how does a church, how do we as Christians, how does a church and how do we as Christians minister to people like that? How do you serve toxic people? How do you serve people who have forgotten, no longer know how to be good? I think that's the subject matter of this little book of Titus. And he's gonna answer that question for us throughout the entirety of his letter, but as Paul often does, in his introduction, it sort of serves as a table of contents. And in that introduction, he's gonna give us three big words. These are big idea words. He's gonna flesh out the details later on. He says, but there are three huge things I want you to remember as we minister into a culture like this, and I want to focus on them for just a minute this morning. I want to focus on those three words. And the first has to do with faith, and it can be summarized like this. Toxic people need to hear about the faith that is able to make them special. Now, Paul does some really interesting things in this passage. Let me show you what he's doing in verse one. He starts by saying, Paul, a servant. Now, in order for this first point to, to make a, a sense to us, we have to, we have to get it that Paul is addressing a certain kind of people, and that certain kind of people is, is summarized in this word servant. In the apostles' day, for the Greeks and the Romans to be a servant, and literally it's the word slave, meant to be nobody. Uh, Aristotle, one of the famous uh, philosophers that all of us have heard about, once said, a slave is a piece of property. A slave is a living tool. Paul uses this word sort of to remind us that there are people in the world that, that think about themselves that way, that live that way. 
That's the first word. Keep, keep your thought on that. Because then there's a second word in the phrase. Of Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect. Now that's an interesting term, that word elect. And it carries all kinds of theological baggage, doesn't it? I mean, right away you begin to think, well, where are we going to go with elect? But, you know, and the way Paul is using it here, it doesn't have, I think, all of that baggage. It just simply means special. It just simply means special. When, when I was in the third grade, I was a little guy uh, and never got chosen on the kickball team. I, you know, we'd line up in recess and, and uh, they would have two teams and I was this little guy and you know, you're always lucky if you chosen next to last. You thought you were pretty special if you got chosen next to last. And then there was this one guy, he was sort of the Jason of the day. His, his name was Butch. Butch was always the captain of one of the teams. And I always thought it was so special when Butch chose me to be on his team. That's the word elect, chosen, the sense of specialness. And what Paul is asking here, what he's trying to set up for us is, how do you get toxic people People have forgotten how to be good. People that think of themselves in categories of I'm a nobody. I'm not anything. I'm just like a slave or a servant. How do you get that person to begin to think of themselves in terms of a special person? God's special person. How do you, how do you pull those two things together? And there's that word right there in the middle, isn't it? The word faith is the word that does it. And Paul does an interesting thing. I think what he's doing is taking this word slave and he's redeeming it. He's taking a word from society and he's now gonna pour new content into it. So let me show you a passage from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, uh, it's in chapter 015, I think, of the book of Deuteronomy, verses 12 through 17. And it says this. It's talking about an Old Testament form of slavery. If any of your people... Hebrew men or women sell themselves. Now, why would they do that? Why, why would they sell themselves? Well, it's because they'd gotten themselves into an economically poor condition. Uh, these were people that really didn't have many choices in life. Uh, they were what we would call today the homeless people, the street people, no ability to get a job, no marketable skills, everything they touch had turned to clay. Uh, these are that out group of people. So they had sold themselves. It's, the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy is really interesting. See, the, the Old Testament provides a social network, the safety net. If you get into that kind of trouble in the Old Testament, there's a way out. Uh, it's called indentured servanthood. That's what this is describing. Here are people that have reached rock bottom and they sell themselves, but they can't do it forever. There's a time limit on it. It says you serve six years and in the seventh year, you must let them go free. So there was always a limit on the kind of servanthood that Israel 
experienced. And notice this, and when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed, but you go back into your stores and supplies and your flocks, and you give them some of your flock. You give them a fat little sheep or two, and, you, and, you, and your threshing floor, and you give them something that they can survive from, and, and your wine press, and you give them some, something that they can go out with so that you've supplied them so that they can get a fresh start. They've paid their debt, and now you give them the ability to get a fresh start, and then he says in the last part, he says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That's why I gave you this command today. Now the next part of our passage. But if your servant says to you, I don't want to leave. I don't want to go. Because he loves you and your family and is well off with you. Take an all. This is a little drill bit. Back them up to a doorpost and pierce their ear. Give them a mark in their ear, ear piercing, so that he will become your servant for life. And female slaves, not second class citizens either, they have the same options in the Israelite culture. Now you see what Paul has done here. He's recognized that, that we're all in slavery of some sort. That, that all of us have the sense of being nobody sometimes. That, that we feel that we don't measure up. And he's taken this Old Testament passage and he says, you know what the problem is with toxic people? Is that they've chosen the wrong master. And he wants them to have this way out. And so he's introducing them to a New Testament concept through this kind of Old Testament idea. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and you will find rest from your soul. Let me be your master, and I'll give you dignity, and I'll give you a new start, and I'll send you out with a clean life. That's what Paul, I think, is doing in this passage. He's trying to show how toxic, lost people can find a new, fresh start in your life. And does it work? You bet it does. Anytime you hear the testimony of a person that has experienced this. Don't they say that it's something like experiencing freedom? Uh, in his book, uh, George Hunter's book called The Church for the Unchurched, uh, there was a survey taken that says, uh, what, is, what is the difference that Christ has made in your life? And he says, almost to a person, each one of them said it was freedom from something. Freedom from a legalistic or moral agenda. Freedom from the influence of some oppressive peer group. Freedom from the power of guilt, or anxiety, or sorrow, or despair. Freedom from low self-esteem, or grandiose self-esteem, or self-preoccupation. Freedom from addiction, or some destructive life pattern. Freedom from haunting memories of child abuse. Freedom from the fear of the future. Freedom of the terror of death. You name it, freedom, freedom, freedom by the servanthood of Christ. You see, I think what Paul is saying in this first part of this letter is that the way to get from being lost, from being a nobody, to being elect, one of God's special people, is by faith, the kind of voluntary devotion to Christ that Paul calls being a servant. Toxic people, lost people, people who have forgotten how to be good need to hear that. That's a part of the way we serve them, by ministering into the culture with this message 
And the challenge for churches and for Christians, for people like us, I think, is to help toxic people know that we understand their struggle and that we have a response that can help them move from being here to being over here. I think that's the first thing Paul says. It's a good piece of advice. Now that brings us to a second big word, and you'll see that there in verse two, if faith was one of the parts of it. Verse two, he says, in hope of eternal life. That's my second point this morning. I think toxic people need to hear that there is a hope that is bigger than this life that they experience. Paul calls it the hope of eternal life. It's a special hope. It's an exceptional hope. In his book on the resurrection, a scholar N.T. Wright describes a tombstone that existed in the Apostle Paul's day, and it reads, I was not, I was. I am not, I care not. That's the despair that existed in Paul's day. It's the same kind of despair I think toxic and lost people have always experienced. In the 1960s, I know I date myself with some of these illustrations, but in the 1960s, there were two songwriters whose uh, bread and butter uh, had been comic music aimed at teens. They wrote songs like Charlie Brown, He's a Clown. You remember that one? They wrote songs like Yakety Yak, Don't Talk Back. They wrote songs like Elvis Presley's, You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog. That's how they made their money. They wrote those funny little songs that teens liked. But they published one song that was different. It came out in 1969. It tells the story of a woman who was remembering her past. She remembers being rescued by her father from a burning house when she was a little girl. She remembers being taken to the circus on her 12th birthday and seeing clowns and elephants and dancing bears, she says. She remembers the first time she fell in love and the broken heart that she experienced as a result. But in that song, what she remembers most is how empty all those things left her feeling. And she said, if that's all there is to life, we should break out the booze and have a ball until we meet what she calls the greatest disappointment of all, ending our life in death. You remember the song? It was titled, Is That All There Is? And it was sung by Peggy Lee and has survived in a number of morphings uh, ever since then. In fact, since she's released that song in 1969, 30 years after her release, it was voted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. And I asked myself, what is there about this song that people find so appealing? And I just have to answer, that's where many toxic people live their lives. That's where they are today. They think that what they have is the best they can expect. There is no more, and it doesn't satisfy, and so why not just break out the booze and have a ball? This is, it doesn't get any better than this. And that's not a glorious statement. That's a statement that they have given up. Well, compare that with the woman who was told that she had cancer. Her doctor told her that she only had three months to live and that she could start right now to make preparations to die. And so she did. 
She began to take her relationship with her Lord more seriously, and she started to pay more attention to God's word. In the process, she discovered that God was giving her actually a ministry to those people that came into her presence to, to minister to her. This life, this woman's life began to spill out into their lives because of her faith and because of the stance that she had taken and because of the things that she was experiencing in the Christ. She saw a new hope spill from her into them. And near the end, uh, she called her pastor and spoke to him about final wishes. We do this on a regular basis with families that have lost people. And she told him the songs that she wanted sung at her funeral. And she told him the scripture passage that she wanted read. And she also told him that she wanted to be buried with her Bible. And just about the time the pastor thought she was done, she said, oh, there's one more thing. I want to be buried with a fork in my hand. The pastor didn't quite get that, and she saw that he didn't quite get it, so she explained. She said, in all my years of attending church socials, my favorite part was whenever somebody was clearing away the dishes, they would say, you can keep the fork. And I was so excited because I knew that was a signal that something was coming. And it wasn't going to be jello, and it wasn't going to be any kind of pudding stuff. It was going to be something with substance, you know, cake or pie. So I wanted people to see me in my casket with a fork in my hand, and I wanted them to wonder, what's with the fork? And I want you to tell them, when you hear them ask that question, she believed something of substance is coming. She believed something better lies ahead. And that's the kind of question our lives as churches and Christians are designed to generate in the lives of toxic people. We're supposed to live in such a way that whether we experience joy or sorrow or everything comes crashing down, we're supposed to live in such a way that we've got a fork in our hands. And when people see how we handle those things, they, they ask the question, what's up with the fork? What's that all about? So that we can share with these toxic people that there is something bigger than this life that doesn't satisfy, even in its best moments. There's something more that Jesus has to give. Hope of eternal life. And then there's that third point. It's down there in verse four. I love this word, but you gotta see how it's sandwiched here. Remember I told you Paul's doing some really interesting things. The third word is grace. We've got to show toxic people that there's a grace that refuses to leave Jesus out. Now, just like he, summer, he, he uh, sandwiched faith between servanthood and election up early on, he does something really fascinating here. Look at verse three, the end of verse three, the phrase, the command of God, our Savior. Now, that's referring to our Father. The Father, God, is our Savior. Now then in verse four, where it says grace and peace from God the Father, now look what he says, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. He wants to make sure we know that both members of the Trinity, both the Father and the Son, are included in this salvation thing. Grace and peace that we offer is not just from the Father, and it's not just from the Son, it's from both, and why is that a big deal? Well, let me give you an illustration of how easy it is to forget that we can leave one or the other out. It's from a book, some of you have probably read the book by Philip Yancey called uh, What's So Amazing About Grace. You remember this story? 
tells the story of a, what he calls the story of the prodigal daughter, a girl who grew up in a cherry orchard in Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, she thinks, Yancey writes, overreact to her nose ring and the music she listens to and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times and she just sees inside. I hate you, she screams when her father knocks on her door of her room after one of the arguments they had. That night she ran away to Detroit. Her second day in the city, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. And he offers her a ride and he buys her lunch and arranges a place for her to stay and he gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. Well, the good life continues for a month, two months, almost a year. The man with the big car teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men will pay a premium for her and she lives in a penthouse and she can order room service whenever she wants it. Soon, the first time of sickness, the signs of sickness start to appear. Before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. Winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on a metal grate outside the big department stores in Detroit. And one night as she lies awake, she begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight up underneath her and shivers under the newspaper that she's using for a blanket. And an image fills her with warmth. On a day in May, back home, when a million cherry trees are in bloom all at once with her golden retriever dashing through the trees in chase of a tennis ball. Why did I leave? She asks herself. My dog back home eats better than I do now. And more than anything, she just wanted to go home. So she makes three straight phone calls, but only gets the answering machine on the first two. She hangs up without leaving a message those first two times, but on the third, she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. And I was wondering if maybe I could come home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow, and if you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it finally arrives in Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to go from Traverse City, to, from Detroit to Traverse City, and during that time, she rehearses what she's going to say to her father. Dad, she says, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault, it's mine. Dad, can you forgive me? And she repeats the phrase over and over and over. Because see, it's been a long time since she's apologized to anyone. When the bus finally arrives at the station, the driver announces over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, 15 minutes. That's all the time we have here. 15 minutes, she thinks. 15 minutes to decide my life. She checks herself in the compact mirror that she's carrying and she smooths her hair and licks the lipstick off her teeth and she looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice if they're even there. And she walks into the terminal and not one of a thousand scenes that she had played out in her mind had prepared her for what she's now seeing. There in the terminal stands a group of 40 family members. 
brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and grandmother and great grandmother and they're all wearing these ridiculous looking little party hats and they're all blowing these little nose noisemaker things and taped across the back wall of the bus terminal is one of these computer generated banners that says welcome home and out of the crowd breaks her dad and she looks through tears and she begins her memorized speech and says dad I'm sorry I know I was wrong And he interrupts her and says, don't worry, my child. We've got no time for an apology here. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you back home. Now, that's a pretty powerful story. Every time I read it, it brings tears to my eyes. But there's something missing in this story. Did you spot it? There's something missing in this story. We see the girl's repentance. That's there, and it's plain. We see the Father's grace, that's there, isn't it? His forgiveness, he interrupted. But what's missing? We don't see the work of Jesus in this story that supposedly tells people about the meaning of grace. Now, I don't think Yancey left Jesus out on purpose, but that's my point. Sometimes we take Jesus' part in salvation so for granted that we tell the story and forget that it cost him his death on the cross for us to be able to be forgiven and the Father to unleash his grace. As Colossians explains, Paul writes, God was pleased through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself, the Father, All things by making peace through his blood on the cross. You see, we can talk about grace all day long, and there are a lot of people that like to sing the song Amazing Grace today. It's become a pop song even for a lost culture that's forgotten how to be good. But when you leave Jesus out of that story, What you've given toxic people, lost people, is a partial, unfinished story. And toxic people need to hear the whole thing. They need to hear it all. And that's why in Titus, Paul makes sure that he includes Jesus. It's God our Savior and Jesus our Savior. Paul refuses to leave Jesus out even in his conversation about grace. Well, we've been talking about ministering to toxic people, so let me ask you a question before we wind up this morning. Who's the most toxic person you know? I'm gonna confess to you, I'm the most toxic person I know. I do harm to people that I love, I sometimes forget how to do good. I'm the one that needs to hear this message. And if we think anything different about ourselves, no wonder people drive past our churches and wonder if they're too toxic to come in. We're all toxic people. We're all lost. None of us can stand before each other apart from the grace of Jesus Christ unleashed for us to make us the people we should be. 
if we're honest, I think we've got to admit we're there, aren't we? Titus is ministering to us. This is a letter for us. So my point is that Paul used this little phrase, the truth that leads to godliness earlier on. My point is that the truth that leads to godliness is not just for people out there. We all need, I need, a faith that assures me I'm one of God's special people because I don't always feel that way. We all need, I need, a hope that's bigger than life's very best because I don't always feel that way. We all need grace that refuses to leave Jesus out. Churches and Christians who minister like that, I believe, will always have a place in any culture, even in a culture that has forgotten how to be good. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, this is a, a powerful book. This is a book that shows us uh, our inner selves, explains to us things that we don't often hear or admit or want to see. Lord, would you continue to serve us by using the message Paul gave to Titus to remind us, Lord, that without you we're nothing, that we stand by faith, that we need hope based on grace that Jesus Christ released. Amen.